I believe that the scriptures reveal that there are different measures, if you don't like the word measure, different manifestations of the Spirit revealed in Scripture. There's an unlimited, as in fullness, or without measure, that was given to Christ in, in John 3, verse 34. And there's the baptism with the Holy Spirit, I think given to the apostles, and we'll talk about how we get to that conclusion, or at least how I get to that conclusion. And even the household of Cornelius, Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, and Acts 10 and 11. And even a manifestation or a measure in the laying on of the apostles' hands, that, that which was given to miraculous gifts, and we would uh, reference uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Acts 8, 2 Timothy 1, and a variety of passages, and I guess I'm already behind <laughs> on charts. And then what I'll just call the non-miraculous indwelling that I think is promised to all believers. And, and let me say uh, clearly an utterance <laughs> here. By non-miraculous, I mean the recipient is not empowered to perform miracles. And, and the reason I want to say it that clearly is because we're going to talk about some things later that people might say, well, if you believe that, then you must believe in this kind of miraculous ability to do things. So you'll know before I go any further in what I have to say today that I do not believe that is the case. And I, and I believe that's clear in Scripture. I believe that the first three of these are limited to as to when and whom the Spirit was to be received uh, in, in, this in these measures or in these manifestations. The question we seek to answer, though, in this lesson is, is a promise of the Holy Spirit, is there a promise of the Holy Spirit for believers today? And if so, what is that promise that applies today? I do believe that the answer lies in the fourth measure that is uh, on our chart, and it is in the non-miraculous indwelling. It, it is true that the Holy Spirit is promised in various manifestations to the people of God. If we go through the Bible, we're going to see that as, as, as we study our lesson. First, by God through the prophets. And then by God through the, John the Baptist. And then Jesus came and promised the Holy Spirit to all believers. The problem many religious people have is understanding just what God promised, to whom, and how these promises are fulfilled. You might say, when I'm done, you don't know either, but I'm going to do the best I can. To, to explain at least my understanding. So let's begin by thinking in terms of the promise in the Old Testament. Someone said just a little bit ago, there's more to it than we sometimes say. And, and that's really what I believe study has, has emphasized to me, that there's more to it than I, than I used to think 
in just a, a surface study of something and get in there and look at it more deeply, there's more to it. There are several passages that I think deserve some notice. I have several of them on, on the chart here. Uh, and it seems evident to me that the Old Testament prophets promised a spatial dispensation of the Spirit to come. For instance, in the prophecy of Joel, chapter 2, um, and, and this is the one that usually gets the most attention, I, I, I think. We go to that, and this, this is the passage we look at. And, and I think rightly so, because where's the emphasis placed in, in Acts 2 in the Sermon of Peter? It's on Joel 2, okay? But sometimes when we make that emphasis, we don't look at all that Peter said that Joel said. Right? Because not necessarily is everything explained in what Peter says in what's re, what is recorded for us. I don't know how much explanation he went into uh, that's not recorded for our use. I'm, I'm not even implying maybe there was any more explanation than what is written down for us, but with many other words that he exhorted him saying, tells me there was more said about at least some things than that. In Joel 2.28, it says, And it shall come to pass, and you might stick your thumb in your Bible there if you're looking at it, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also, see that also? And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars and smoke of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before, great, before the great and terrible day of Jehovah cometh. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of Jehovah shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those that escape, as Jehovah has said, and among the remnant, those whom Jehovah did call. Now, now what's in this passage? What are the basics that we see in this passage? The Spirit poured out on all flesh. And the sons and daughters of Israel, notice you're, the sons and daughters of Israel prophesying, and Israel's young and old men seeing visions and dreaming dreams. And then we see God's Spirit poured out upon His servants and handmaids. I think that includes the Gentiles. He's extending that to the Gentiles. I just won't take the time to develop all that, but I, 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 maybe you'll just accept that as a given. That's what, what's being said there. It's kind of connected to 2.18 and some other things like that. This prophecy of pouring out His Spirit, and, and will you allow me to, to say promise here? Because we're talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. Will you allow me to use that word? Because that's what Jesus called it in Luke 24, verse 49. All right? Acts 1 and verse 4. And this began the fulfillment, or the fulfillment began, I, might, I, I must say, 
on the day of Pentecost after the ascension of Christ. But you notice I said it began on that day. So it began when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was now come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them tongues parting asunder like as a fire, and it sat on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And I might just say here, make a a little point, it seems that poured out and filled with are used interchangeably between Joel 28 and Acts 2 and verse 4. Sometimes there's an argument made or there's a a, sort of a a quibble made about the nuance of the difference. Uh, I have a a good friend that we, we talk about this quite quite often when we have oppor- at least when we have opportunity and and he'll make a, a real but it seems uh, uh, he'll try to make a distinction between the two uses of these terms but it seems to me they're used interchangeably here and these events were in answer to the promise of my father which Jesus sent forth Luke 2:24 we referred to that more than one time uh, both in this and in, in lessons that follow um and, and behold, I send forth the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city until you be clothed with power from on high. So we have a connection here that we're going to follow through. But I want you to think about the promise here for, for a second. That Joel prophesied of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you go and wait, Luke 24, And then Peter says that Jesus received the promise of the Father and it resulted in the outpouring of the Spirit. That's chapter 2, verse 33. And then he says this promise is for all in chapter 2, verse 39. And so it seems that the promise in Acts 2, 39 is the Holy Spirit, at least in some way. Now, we'll we'll try to develop that more later, but I, I believe it's fair for us to see the logical connections of these things that are put forth here. The Holy Spirit, who enabled the apostles to speak in languages that were foreign to them. That's what, that's what happened here in Acts 2. And by the way, there's not much else said about what they were endowed with at that point, is there? We may extrapolate more from that, and we often do. I don't know if we do that justly or not. Okay. Peter ties the events of that day directly to Joel's prophecy. He says, for these are not drunken, verse 15, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which has been spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last day, saith God, I will pour forth my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And, and yea, and on my servants and upon my handmaidens in those days Oh, I pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, etc., etc. And furthermore, he says here, verse 33, Being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath poured forth this which you do see and hear. And then Peter says, 
the promise was to every or for every obedient believer. For to you is the promise and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call to him. The promise was to you, those who were present, and to your children, meaning their descendants that would submit to the same grace of obedience. And those afar off are the Gentiles, as many as the Lord your God shall call. And I want to raise the question, at least I want you to think about this. Is Joel's prophecy a broad spectrum prophecy that includes those who were to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, the apostles, for instance, and, and those who would receive miraculous gifts by the laying on of the apostles' hands, but also include the non-miraculous indwelling spirit promised to all obedient believers. Because that's what happening. That's what ha- that's what I see here. And I want you to think about that at least. It seems to be connected in our context. There's a couple of things for us to observe. Part of Joel's prophecy is tied to the baptism with the Holy Spirit for the apostles. There's no question about that in Acts 2. But also prophecy and visions and dreams for others and even Gentiles. And not all of these, even the miraculous, those of the miraculous nature, were fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. They're not there in the, in the day of Pentecost. What we find is what happens to the apostles. But the other parts of that prophecy are not fulfilled in the, in, at that particular time. And even an outpouring on all. I believe the outpouring upon all has to do with those who are obedient believers. Now let me head off a quibble. Or at least try to. Although Joel's prophecy is most often interpreted in connection with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the miraculous gifts that were given through the apostles' hands, I think, brethren, it may be a mistake to limit it to just these things. Clearly, the pouring out of God's Spirit on all flesh included the miraculous. It's exhibited by the apostles, the household of Cornelius, and those who had their hands laid on them by the apostles. But why must it stop there? Why could not this outpouring include the gift of the Holy Spirit, literally the gift being the Spirit himself, as promised to every repentant, baptized believer. And, and to, to, to at least try to make that point, I want us to see, was it not Jesus himself who in John, 37, or John 7, 37 and 38 said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The The Apostle John explained Jesus' remarks by saying, but he spoke concerning the Spirit. He made that connection. Whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the time had not come yet. Verse 39. It is clear that these two verses speak of anyone who thirsts and he who believes in me. So why then... 
Should I not believe that when Peter said, for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call, verse 39, that he was not talking to all. Then and in the future, who would obey the gospel? After all, Jesus, who is now glorified in heaven and sitting on the right hand of the Father on high, was the one who was pouring out what is seen and heard on the first Pentecost. If this included the baptism with the Holy Spirit, as well as miraculous gifts of the Spirit given by the laying on of the apostles' hands, which it clearly did, I believe we've established that, then why could it not also include the gift of the Holy Spirit given to every obedient believer? So, brethren, I don't see any scriptural reason why the gift of the Holy Spirit could not also include him being given to every obedient believer following throughout time, from the first century as long as it lasts. If we couple this with Ezekiel 36 and 27, where God says, I will put my spirit within you, realizing that he is referring to those same people whom he also said he would give a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31, and a new name, Isaiah chapter 62, verses 2 and 3, and a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, Daniel 2, verse 44. And I think one can see that these are none other than the people he was referring to when he said, I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. Let's look at the prophecy of of Isaiah. You know, Isaiah about, you know, 750, 700 years before Christ. Isaiah says, I will pour out, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. And streams upon the dry ground. Now, if you've lost track of what I'm doing, I'm going back and looking at some of these Old Testament prophecies. And, I, and streams upon the dry ground, I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up among the grass as well as by the watercourses. And one shall say, I am Jehovah's. And another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. And another shall subscribe with his hand unto Jehovah and surname himself by the name of Israel. By the way, I forgot to tell you this when I started, so please excuse me. And I apologize. If you notice a little different rendering in some of these passages because I wanted to use the American standard in this in, in this uh, in this lesson because I, th- I think it's a, a little clearer in some of the things that are said. So if, if you was kind of lost in that, that's where, I, that's where where I've been. So what elements are included in what what Isaiah says here? God's pouring out his spirit upon Israel's descendants. Verse three. And connecting the promise of the Spirit with the figure of water given to him who is thirsty. And that's, that's important. We find any correlating similar passage in the New Testament. Yes, we do. And we find it in John 7, in, in verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, 
for from within him shall flow rivers of living water. By the way, you, you preaching brethren or anybody else who's a, a, a deep student of, of the word of God, if you can tell me where that passage is exactly, I'll put it in my notes because I can't find it exactly. It may be referring to um, Zechariah 3, perhaps verse 1 uh, or, or 14 verse 8 or even Joel 3 verse 18 and uh, you know, roughly some things that are in there that are similar. It may be just referring back to Isaiah 44. Okay. It's not the exact rendering or the exact words, but similar, very similar ideas. He says, he that believes on me, as the scripture says, from with him shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the spirit, which they that believed on him were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given. Whatever sense in which he was to be given, it had not happened yet. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. It wasn't, this was not going to happen until Jesus is resurrected. All right. Now, I want us to note a couple things here. God's spirit had been given, endowed or manifested, however you want to use that. Many times in the past, in that miracles and wonders and signs and dreams and visions and inspirations and prophecies had been given. That wasn't a new thing. Whatever since Jesus is promising in this text is a different manifestation than ever before given that would not and could not be given until after he was re resurrected, and that, until after he was glorified. Hold that thought. In Isaiah 32, Isaiah says, Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. Do we hear a similar phrase used in Luke 24, for instance? Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness become a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest, then justice shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness shall abide in the faithful, fruitful field, and the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. And this, this is found in a section that certainly appears, at least, to have Messianic implications. Isaiah 32, 1 says, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and a prince shall rule in justice. Kind of introduces that idea, doesn't it? Of course. What is the result of this outpouring of the Spirit? First of all, let me just say, Jesus would be the one pouring out the Spirit from on high. That's, that's what's said in Luke 24, verse 49. I send forth the promise of the Father upon you. Okay. What does he say is the, is, is the, the, the idea, the work of righteousness? He says it's, it's peace. The effect of righteousness is quietness and confidence. So the resort, result of this outpouring spirit, justice, righteousness, peace, and confidence, is it appropriate for us to make the connection to Paul's writings in Romans 14 when, when, when he says, uh, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit? 
Seems to be a connection to me, something for us at least to think about. How about the prophecies of Ezekiel? In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, he says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my ordinances and do them. I hope we don't kind of miss the point. I think the point is, of the latter part, it will be a time of voluntary obedience. We will submit and, and obey. But he says, I will put a new spirit within you, and I will put my spirit, the first one not necessarily being the Holy Spirit, but the second one is the idea of the Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit within you, and cause these things to happen. Ezekiel 37 verse 14. I will put my spirit in you. And you shall live. So what elements do we find? What, what, what do we find here. As we looked at preceding uh, passages. Well we find that God promised to put his spirit within you. Or in you. My conclusion that he's talking about. In a, in a way that's never been. Uh, manifested before, he's going to do that at this time, and that would be the indwelling Spirit of God. This would cause or enable one to walk in his statutes and keep his judgments, and if you do that, you shall live. Now, we already made one connection to Romans. Let's make another one. Romans 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwelleth in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall give life also to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwelleth in you. So then, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. You see a connection between what he says in Ezekiel 37, 14. These things happen. You shall live. Paul says, you do these things by the Spirit. You shall live. What about the promise of the Spirit in the New Testament? Well, we have a promise in the preaching of John himself. He spoke of one coming who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Mark Chapter 1, John chapter uh, 1, verse 33, he said, And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize in water said unto me, Upon whomsoever thou shalt see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, the same is he that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Other references, Matthew 3, verse 11, Luke 3, verse 16. And so while John administered a baptism in water, he said that one greater than he would be the administrator of the baptism of the, in the Holy Spirit. And by the way, we might just note here that this was a promise. It's not a command to be obeyed. 
I won't go into a lot of detail of that unless someone wants to question or talk about it later, but it, it's, a, it's a promise, not a command. It's not something that we can do ourselves. And we know that this promise was somehow tied to the events of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And we've, we've looked at that, but I, I want you to uh, let's, let's just do it again. When the day of Pentecost was now, now come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven and the sound is a rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them tongues parting asunder like as a fire, and it sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And by the way, the they of the passage is contextually limited to the apostles. Okay. We know this because of Jesus' comments in in. In chapter 1, in verse 4, and it says they're being assembled together with them. He charged them that they not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. All right. Um, maybe just, just a, a few thoughts on the, on the baptism in the Holy Spirit. There are only two instances of, of this baptism recorded in the Bible, and they're both in the book of Acts. And on both occasions, the baptism was accompanied by a visible and audible evidence that, the, that confirmed the event that was uh, being from God. The, the marker in, uh, on Pentecost was the sound as a, as a rushing mighty wind, American Standard Version, and there appeared unto them tongues parting asunder like as a fire, and it sat, or the New American Standard says there, resting upon them, the apostles. And this, and the fact that 12 Galileans could now speak in a variety of languages that they were previously unknown to them, served as proof that God was giving them the message of the gospel spoken by Peter and the eleven in, in Acts 2, and on that day. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this group of 12 men was God's way of showing approval for what they were doing and confirming those things. In the case of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the household of Cornelius, Acts 10 and verse 45, the purpose was to show that the Jews on uh, that the gospel was to show the Jews that the gospel was to go to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. In Acts 10 and Acts 11, both testify of this truth. The suggestion of this record demonstrates that God now accepted the Gentiles uh, into his plan of salvation. And, of course, a variety of passages in the New Testament kind of confirmed that for us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was a promise that was fulfilled for a number, number and, and, and we may have some discussion about that, according to what we just discussed a few moments ago. That's okay. But I believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a promise that was fulfilled for a limited number of selected people. And it's a promise and not a command that we can obey. So in, in, in the teaching of John, okay, um, uh, in the teaching of Jesus. In John 7, we'll go back to John 7 again because I, I think it's important. Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
And he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, from within him shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believed on him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And I raise this question. I want you to think about this. I think that's, isn't that the purpose of this meeting for us to examine and study and try to excite one another into thinking about things and examining the scriptures more closely. But I raise this question. Is this living water the gift of God that Jesus alluded to earlier? And John, and, and by the way, have you ever connected John 7 back to John 4? Jesus and talking to the woman at the well. And have you ever connected that back to Isaiah 44? See, I think there's a, a direct connection to those three things. So what does he say here? All those who thirst, all those who come to me, faith, all those who drink, and all that believe on him. That's the elements we see here. And so note again the comparison of the Spirit to water in Isaiah's prophecy. I will pour water out upon him that is thirsty and streams upon the dry ground, and I will pour my Spirit upon thy seed. Jesus promised the apostles the spirit of truth who would be a comforter. Some translations say advocate. Comes from parakletos, meaning a helper. Uh, as I said in the New King, or the King James, New King James says advocate. The English Standard uses that in the footnote. And he said he, he, would, he would be a comforter and, and he would abide with them. He would be with them. John 14, verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever. I think that's an important element, by the way, for us to think about. He will be with you forever. Jesus said, I go away. And when I go, he, he, he will not come till I go away. I go away, and he will be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, for it beholdeth him not, neither knoweth him. You know him, for he abideth with you and shall be in you. <coughs> he would give them something, brethren, that the world could not receive. He says he can't, they can't receive it. He would abide with them, and he said he shall be in you. We, we may have to work at discovering what he means by that, but that's what he says in this passage. And he would bring to their remembrance all things that Jesus taught them. Speaking to the apostles. But the Comforter, even the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. The Holy Spirit would bear witness of Christ together with the apostles, John chapter 15. And convict the world of sin and of righteousness, John chapter 16. And guide the apostles into all truth, including things to come. John 16, 12, and 13. Jesus told his apostles to wait into, in Jerusalem until they received the promise of the Father. And I, I realize there's a little repetition in this. 
both for emphasis and to try to keep things in, at least what I think is in an orderly fashion. <laughs> Again, Luke 24, 49, Acts 1, 4, and 5, Acts 2, 33, and Acts uh, 2:38. Jesus clearly connects the promise of the Father to the baptism of the Spirit spoken of by John, in which they the they being the apostles, would receive power and become eyewitnesses. Acts 1, verse 8. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus promised here an endowment or a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that was meant for the apostles. That's what's exemplified in the first part of those things. But let's think about, I don't know if I, I don't think I have a chart on this. Um, the preaching of Peter in Acts 2. And, and this is kind of just summarizing a previous point. Remember that on Pentecost, Peter ties the outpouring of the Spirit to the prophecy of Joel. And then in the course of his sermon, Peter speaks of the outpouring of the Spirit as a promise Jesus received from the Father. That's in verse 33, and we refer back to Acts 1, 4, and 5. And says the gift of the Holy Spirit will be given to all who repent and are baptized. We're, we're going to talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit next. But that's what he says, and so we'll summarize that with this part of the lesson. And he says the promises to them who are present and to others, all that are far off. What promise did Peter have in mind? What is, what is the logical per, 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 uh, uh, procession here? What promise would have come to the mind of the people who were hearing that lesson is the question that I have to ask. Are, are, are they doing some kind of mental gymnastics trying to figure out the differences between a variety of different promises, or do we have in the context a logical conclusion? Okay. Would it not have been the promise that he just alluded to? The promise received by Christ and now poured out by Christ in verse 33. This, the Spirit which Jesus Himself promised to believers. John 7 37 through 39 again. Was it not the gift of the Holy Spirit himself? The indwelling spirit. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1. You are yet sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 13 and 14, which is an earnest of our inheritance. It is a down payment, a, a guarantee of our inheritance. The, you know, unto the re, what he says, unto the redemption of God's own possession, unto the very praise of his glory. We could put it this way. The earnest becomes a pledge of our final glorification. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we're told, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
what is the appeal in the end to us? What, what is, a, you know, at least a brief application to this? What, what's the practical part of that? It is, brethren, sisters, do not defile God's temple with either sin of the flesh or the spirit. That's the admonition, by the way, of Paul, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Don't defile this temple. Remission, forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit are directly and inseparably connected to water baptism. Somebody mentioned that a little bit before the lesson, and I agree with that. I think that's, there, there's no question that that's right. And Peter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that those who asked the question, what shall we do, said to them, one must repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and those persons would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is what's promised to believing, obedient children of God. The comment is made in Acts 5, verse 32. We may or may not get to that in our next lesson. But he says, And we are his witnesses to these, and also is the Holy Spirit, whom God hath given to those who obey him. If we would receive the Holy Spirit today, it's not something that we can do and being baptized with the Holy Spirit, but, it's, but we receive it in our baptism in obedience to the gospel.